everybody welcome to the a to b series podcast i'm your host isaiah studevent ceo of evron and i'm here with my great co-founder and, and guest uh and guest ceo uh shalik sebron go ahead and introduce yourself shalik yeah so as you know um the a to b podcast we kind of focus on startups and marketing and we talk to founders and cmos and everybody in the startup space so today we um we brought on a guest that we've been waiting for and a lot of other people that have podcasts have been waiting for you yeah um i have a list of names actually um they've been waiting for you to join their their podcast because they know um what you what you mean to the b2b space um what you have uh what do you what, what you have already changed in b2b marketing as a whole um everybody knows your name i'm pretty sure everybody that watches this podcast is going to know exactly who you are so wait, wait, wait. Don't, don't don't introduce me we gotta do our shout out real quick Oh, go, oh, happy birthday to Jane Sarah, the VP of marketing at Just Uno. Just wanted to give her that happy birthday shout out. We're dropping the episode on your birthday. Back to you. <laughs> so today we are with the CEO and um, the the innovator of B2B marketing, <laughs> Chris Walker. How you doing, Chris? What's up, guys? Great to be here. For sure. Good to be with you. So I know we, we're, we're not going to be able to give you the best introductions, but if they don't already know who you are, who is Chris Walker? <laughs> What's up, everyone? My name is Chris Walker. I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Refine Labs. I've been a B2B marketer for uh, more than a decade now. I've also been just a B2B professional for a really long time in product management, engineering, operations, manufacturing, demand gen, sales, um, and have been able over the past 10 years to see this uh, crazy shift in how B2B buyers buy and not being matched with how companies shift how they that overall go to market. Um, and so I've noticed that trend. I started seeing it in the early 2010s. I um, I started to bet my career on demand gen specifically and uh, how you drive revenue with marketing in 2016. That uh, that move has obviously play, paid off for me quite a bit. And I started my company in 2019 off that core insight after seeing the same pattern at B2B companies over and over. Um, and since then, I've been able to scale my company quite a bit. Um, on the back of LinkedIn content, a really strong point of view, innovating on things like attribution, marketing KPIs, sales and marketing alignment, um, even down at the tactical level, like how to run Facebook ads, what are the best way to run LinkedIn ads. And so I spent a lot of time uh, basically just innovating. I feel like in B2B companies, a lot of marketers get handcuffed by companies to do certain things that have been accepted by executives, like build trade show booths and get leads with content syndication and do stuff like that. And I've just challenged the way that we do things and trying to push this profession forward by uh, by basically looking at what's already happened in B2C and then being able to translate how are we going to be able to use those things that have proven based on human behavior in B2C and make them work in B2B. So I want to know, and the audience is going to want to know, Let's so let's start back to young Chris, right? What was your first role in marketing? How did you get started in marketing? Did you go to school for it? You kind of just got into it. I didn't go to school for it. I uh, I studied electrical computer engineering in college. 
Um, and the first time I worked in marketing was in 2013 for a company called Volk Optical. They sold optical medical devices to ophthalmologists and optometrists. And that was really an upstream marketing role, working on new product launches. What product are we going to develop? How are we going to position it? What should the website copy look like? How are we going to launch it? How are we going to train the channel or the sales team? So a lot of like more traditional B2B marketing, that was in 2013. At the same time, I started a B2C company from my bedroom um, and learned a lot of marketing that way, running Facebook ads to sell speakers, running Google search ads to sell things. Um, and so I learned a lot of the marketing principles that I use today in B2B on B2C products using my own money. So I thought that was a really good learning. I have a famous story that um, I didn't have a lot of money at the time and I, I ran $1,000 in one day on Amazon search ads and closed zero sales. <laughs> And uh, and you learn really quickly how to run search ads when you waste a thousand dollars of your own money in one day, and you learn low intent keywords, negative keywords, how to bid, um, and so I think a lot of the learnings that I've had and moved into B two B in terms of ROI and efficiency have been through those experiences. So like, what was your let's let's talk about like what was your first interaction as far as like B two B marketing? Like, what did you see a difference in B two B marketing from B two C, or was like it was pretty similar for you? <laughs> There's a huge difference. Uh, this is back in 2013, but like the the company I worked for, the head of sales ran marketing as well, and marketing was an afterthought. It was like, okay, can I get a brochure? Can you help train our sales team? Can you build this? You know, we want to go to 10 conferences this year. Can you help organize the conferences? Um, and that was basically like that was basically marketing in 2013. Sales enablement, trade show boost. Maybe you run an occasional webinar. P2B companies didn't even take their website seriously in 2013. Um, and so that was my first interaction with it. And at that point, I was like, maybe I need to figure out how to get into sales. Um, and then as you keep going in the career progression, I just started to see this move where where salespeople were being less productive and salespeople were struggling when they went and got meetings and companies were planning on having more salespeople and not seeing it all play out. Um, and then when you match that with some customer research about how buyers want to buy and where they research and discover, um, I started to see, hey, actually, there's a huge opportunity in marketing here. Uh, it's, it's the missing piece for a lot of B2B companies. They have a great product. They have a capable sales team. They got a great like operational infrastructure around to run the business. And they just haven't figured out how to unlock this, this piece. So um, yeah, that was sort of my first experience, but happy to go deeper if you want. Yeah, for sure. Because like for even for us, I mean, people that we've we've worked with so far, um, a lot of a lot of them depend on marketing as like the last resort. You know, it's usually like, <sighs> as you know, yeah, exactly. Like they they try sales, they try product led, they try it all, and then when when it doesn't work out how they thought, they're like, okay, well let's let's throw some money at some ads and let's see if it works. I got a quick uh, get your thoughts on it. Um, do do you feel like most B two B companies? Higher too early or too late on like that marketing lead you know i think it i think it varies but in in the experience that i've seen companies over hire on sales too early um and they don't hire enough in marketing to sort of figure out that engine um and that's what you did in the you know in early 2010s that's how you would grow your company that's what your vcs would tell you to do um, put feet on the street, do unscalable things, get six sales reps or SDRs, try and like just push through to a million ARR, raise the next round of funding, and then go figure out marketing. Um, and that's fine when funding is easy. 
and money is easy. But uh, in the current situation, I think a lot of companies are seeing a lot of pressure there. Can't get to the millionaire or can't get to the next round. Um, I think it's a really interesting time uh, because we haven't really experienced an economic situation like mm-hmm. this in almost 15 years now. Yeah, that, that actually goes to, to my to my post on LinkedIn this morning about how companies try to cut spend when it's like in reality, you probably shouldn't cut spend just yet. You should probably try to optimize what you have, what you're working with, because if you cut spend, as soon as you turn it back on, you're going to have this, the same problems that, that you did have. I think but, it's because they don't understand like the... Uh, and we kind of got it from you. The ninety-seven percent, like people just aren't in in the, in the market to buy it. Like you only got three percent, and then you turn it off, and it's either you or your competitors are are creating the, the demand that's going to turn into you being able to capture demand. Well, so companies the, yeah, turn it he, off and then miss out on that demand. Here's the problem: in twenty twenty one, it was ninety-seven. Three percent of people actively buying in 2023, it's a half a percent. <laughs> so the overall organic market demand has gone way down. Um, and you can either create, go out and create the demand for yourself, or somebody else will. Or you have to lower your your you know sales and marketing expenditures by a significant amount to actually get back to a uh, relatively acceptable cost of acquisition. Um, and so that's what's happening: is demand overall demand for categories is going down. Therefore, and CAC is going up. Companies need to decrease marketing and sales expenditures to actually just continue to maintain those metrics. And a lot of companies should have been decreasing spend in 2021. I would go and analyze, you know, virtual event platforms that were going to get tons of revenue no matter what, but still spend a million a million dollars a month on Google ads only. Um, and so there was a bunch of companies that were overspending in 2021 and 2022, like ridiculously, irresponsibly overspending mm-hmm. on paid media programs, not scrutinizing the ROI. They probably spent 5x more than they should. Um, and so the budgets were inflated, right? Mm-hmm. I was talking to a, a company in 2022 that was a $40 million top-line revenue company, and the marketing budget was $20 million. And that's just unheard of. Uh, <laughs> it's just unheard of. But the money was cheap, and companies had a lot of money, so um, they didn't have this pressure put on them. So when they're spending 20 they actually should be spending 5 and now that recorrection has actually happened, so now it's back down to 5 yeah, and a, a lot of companies um, are definitely seeing the effects of of doing things like that because um, 2023 is the market is just changing, right? So like, mm-hmm. so back f- like 10 years ago in 2013, right? It sounds so so long ago. <laughs> it was. Um, it is. So back in 2013, <laughs> like what like what have you seen, right? Um, which is probably a long list, right? Mm-hmm. Of certain principles that you probably went by back in 2013 that just they they don't even make sense now. I mean, like uh, a lot of companies would build their revenue plan based on a reverse sales headcount model. A lot of companies still do that today. We want to close that. We want to end the year at this much revenue. So therefore, we need to close this much net new, this much expansion. We're going to have this much renewal. Um, therefore, for this much net new, we need, you know, eight sales reps to be working 40 deals. So I guess we need to hire six more sales reps to hit our plan this year, um, thinking that like a rep will you know, create the demand, capture the demand, and convert the demand like they did in 2013 or even earlier, but that's really not how it's happening today. So I think reverse sales headcount model uh, is driven by thinking that salespeople should be creating and capturing and converting demand when really it seems to be split based on the emergence of the internet and independent buying from B2B, uh, B2B buyers. If you think about it, like in 2013, B2B companies didn't take their website seriously, like they definitely didn't have a Facebook profile. LinkedIn didn't have a content platform. 
um just so so much has changed in this period of time you know slack maybe i don't even know if it existed or had been founded by then but if it had no like very few people were using it um communities didn't exist you were so the only time that you interacted with peers would be in like some type of professional network group or a conference that you would go to a couple times a year um and so it was just way more uh, disconnected um, when it comes to how B2B buyers share information and get information that has changed now, um, which basically just creates the importance of having a digital presence and having you know great social and content has become so much more important than it used to be. You, I mean, people were writing blogs back then, but um, when you think about social content and what's required to be successful on social versus search, it's just a whole different game. Um, you got a lot of marketers that are still the performance marketing, SEO, SEM, affiliate type of type of marketer that haven't evolved into how you know social and content has changed. Um, I think that you know marketers were basically a sales team's assistant back then. Mm-hmm. Um, even when I was a uh, you know segment manager in 2016, 2017, like you're basically salesperson's assistant. I would fly to meetings and help be a subject matter expert with the sales team. I would build sales enablement. If they asked me to host a webinar, I would host it. We would go to events and host quote unquote ABM dinners. Um, and so yeah, there's just been uh, from back then to the, the mid 2010s to now, just so much has dramatically accelerated based on how executives buy products um, that yeah, it's just a crazy transition. Yeah, the the transition I know has been insane, and like this, like this, is something you've even spoken about on numerous occasions is about just content, like just making like as you you told us, just make content, like just be, keep making content. And I feel like a lot of companies don't either. I don't know what it is. Maybe they just don't believe in it, or it's it's hard to get or to 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 measure the ROI, which goes mm-hmm. into the attribution stuff as well. But. Uh, I think companies really underestimate the value that they can get from organic content or from their CEO just being active on LinkedIn, you know, like their CEO or, you know, um, just everybody in the company being on the same page and actually doing, you know, pushing out that that mission and the ideas that, you know, that their company goes by. Mm -hmm. Companies just kind of be like. Yeah, I uh, don't do the organic, which is amazing to me because, like, you can look at you and look at what you've done, which we're going to get into. Look at what you've done with your company. Uh, I feel like every day we see everybody on LinkedIn from Refine Labs is posting something, mm-hmm. um, and at this point you've you've allowed them to even create their own brands, you know. Um, and again, you had a video about just being creativity uh, and a, a, a company allowing the space for the employees to be creative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of companies they fall short when it comes to creativity, and they don't allow or maybe they just don't push for their employees to post on LinkedIn and build their own brand and, you know, get that those missions and values of the company out on LinkedIn. Yeah, I mean, uh, people see me now, but they don't know what it took to get here. Um, in 2019 and 2020, I posted on LinkedIn every day for almost two years. And sometimes I would have spent two hours to figure out what to post. And I was just so committed to it. And I recognized that most people aren't. Mm-hmm. Most people aren't. It was just, it was core to the strategy, and I had no money. I like VCs weren't funding me. wasn't able to get any debt from a bank. I didn't have I didn't have some rich parent that was feeding me money to grow my business. I, when I started my company, I had three thousand dollars in the bank, um, and so I didn't have any money. And so when you don't have any money, you got to be smarter. You got to do things that are innovative, and you got to work fucking hard. 
Um, and so that's that's what happened. And that and so um, people see me and say, oh, like we should we should do something like that. But when you actually get into doing it, just like if you wanted to go to the gym twice a day, every day um, and get really fit, most people will fall off within the first 15 to 30 days. Um, and that's what separates for the people that are committed to it. And you keep doing it. You get you get better. You get better at explaining things. You get better at communicating. Um, you get better with your hands and your mannerisms. Um, you start to learn about like, hey, this, when I said it that way, it really resonated. When I said this thing, it really made a lot of sense to people. I could see heads nodding and you just learn. It's like practice. It's a practice. Um, and so it's a, it's a craft that I've taken uh, really seriously. A lot of people see me as someone that they could model their, uh, their content against. And for anyone that wants to, I hope you do, because the whole playbook's out there. It's very, it's not easy to execute, but it's very straightforward to, to know what to execute. Um, and it's just, yeah, so happy to go deeper into like the, the grind to actually get here because, and I feel like every creator goes through this. You look like an overnight success, but it's never like that. Yeah, I agree there. Like, uh, like going back to the kind of like the debate on, um, not even a debate, but the, the, the mindset shift that is going to take, it may take a several months or a quarter or two quarters for your content to start picking up or to start doing anything. And I seen, um, Mark Roberge from HubSpot, they did a study and they were talking about most of their leads that came in, in in a given month came from content created three months ago and like companies. So my question, a question I have for you is like, if, if you were to talk into, uh, the marketing leads at, at B2B companies and they're having to balance the, the debate, uh, or the, uh, challenge of, Hey, I understand demand. I've been following Chris Walker and refine. I've been following demand gen, um, playbook. I, this is what I believe in, but at my company, we're still stuck to lead gen things and things that aren't scalable. And we have, because the company wants things and tangible, you know, results a week from now, two weeks from now. So how would you, um, you know, speak to a, a VP of marketing or a marketing lead on how to navigate a scenario like that? By changing the core KPI that you evaluate success from, from number of leads that you get to the amount of pipeline that you create and qualified pipeline that your sales teams at wins at 25%, I think is a great definition. When you shift the bar to that, what you find is that a lot of the marketing garbage that companies do will get leads, will get SQLs, will book meetings, but will not create qualified pipeline. The reason is because the buyer doesn't actually want to buy that much. And so they can get someone into a meeting, they can give away gift cards, they can run lead gen and do their automated outreach follow-ups or anything that they're doing. But when you move the bar and you say, okay, our marketing is going to optimize for qualified pipeline that our sales team wins at greater than 25% so that we're aligned against sales team outcomes. We know that what we're going to be driving is going to hit our revenue targets. And we shift that. You'll identify all these different things that are filled with waste. Um, and then when you actually look deep into the waste, what you'll find is that it's all driven by the intent of the buyer. Um, and then you could look, and I think the, some of the question could evolve into like the difference between the short, balancing the short term and the long term. And the key on the short term is like, I need to be capturing demand for people that are looking to buy what we sell, not trying to get a lead from a company that has the right title and profile that doesn't want to buy. Um, and so then you lean into review sites, you lean into like affiliate blogs, SEO, high intent SEO, SEM, conversion rate optimization, putting a calendar link on your website. When they book a demo so they can book a meeting directly with your sales team, increase the percentage of meetings sat by like 50%. 
And there's so many opportunities to focus on the short-term things that actually drive results, not the short-term things that pump up leads. I agree there. And like to, to pinpoint like what you're talking about with the, like getting a calendar so that they can like book a lead right away. Like one thing we talk about often is the the lead handoff process is is pretty pretty bad in B two B. It's usually the, it's a it's a, uh, a the timing's off. They haven't you know ha- have enough criteria. They don't have enough intent signals. But yet because they're trying to hit like a a lead quota on volume, they hand it off to sales and then sales. Here comes the debate. Here comes the war between marketing and sales. Of sales saying, hey, you guys are giving us you know crappy leads. Marketing's like, hey, we hit our our lead quota. So where like what we try like to think about it is you know. Can you can you quantify like the, the the low intent signals? How do you handle that on a sales process? And of course, the high intent like pipeline is is I don't think you should mesh your pipeline with low mm-hmm. and high intent. It should be two separate pipelines. Mm-hmm. And buyer, then yeah, buyer journey is different. Yeah, and, it's totally and, and different. We we talk about this often messaging when even when like you're passing off a lead yeah. messaging between marketing and sales it should be the same. A, yeah. a customer shouldn't talk to or, or see some ad they see a specific offer that they may like and then when they hop on the phone with sales sales doesn't even know about it. Yeah, how you, you know? handle somebody in SMBs is very different from how you handle enterprise like if they're in problem like if they're just in you know trying to research the the problem that they even have or they're not even aware of it at the SMB level it might be different for enterprise like you might can you might can get them if they're like looking for a solution or like how you engage them and when you engage them is is more important than you engaging them overall like the timing is everything yeah i mean you'll you'll see companies have enterprise in the SMB you know what i'm saying like yeah. it, that just doesn't make sense the yeah. buyer's journey is totally different you should be or it should be you should be treating enterprise differently than you would and like you know what i'm saying cuz it, it doesn't make yeah. sense. It's it, it, it's part buyer experience, but it also part like business planning and forecasting. Yeah. Like sales velocity is going to be different. ACV is going to be different. Win rates are going to be different. Sales cycles are going to be different between your segments, SMB, enterprise, strategic, but also between low intent lead gen, demo requests or high, declared intent uh, conversions, outbound events. ABM intent driven outbound all those different things are going to have different dynamics and being able to look underneath the hood and say okay like this is the place where we have the best sales velocity this is the place that we want to scale a lot of companies just look at pipeline and they say oh our outbounds driving the most pipeline let's scale that even though we win our outbound meetings at six percent um and so yeah there's so many like underlying details as to why to look at it this way it's weird when I like when I look at this, I think about it as a manufacturing facility. We got to manufacture a bunch of widgets. We got to have to optimize the process. And so, if you just bucket it all into one, it's really difficult to understand what's actually happening, where we should focus, what we need to optimize. And so, I think breaking it out into logical points that are based on the f- firmographic fit of the customer and the intent of the customer, and looking at those in two different ways allows us to make better decisions about where to optimize and invest. Yeah, I think I think that's that's kind of where we even start the topic of attribution in itself you know like how do you so when do you think right that companies should even survey you know in incoming leads because i know you talk a lot about self the 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 self attribution you know Mm -hmm. um and still a lot of companies don't don't do it Mm -hmm. Uh, a majority of companies still don't do it that's correct and they uh, they rely on touchpoint-based digital attribution that doesn't effectively measure social media programs, communities, content platforms like Apple or Spotify or YouTube, um, third-party events that they host they don't get their lead list from to check it, um, internal communication channels like email or Slack, 
general word of mouth between peers, whether that's text messages, phone calls, in-person word of mouth, all those things aren't being properly measured by touchpoint-based attribution, therefore not being quantified or, or seen by B2B companies. I think it's just a, it's a big miss. Um, and when, if you go, if you just go out and ask customers, how'd you hear about us? Where do you research and discover and learn? This is where I figured this out in 2017, just because I was in the field with our sales team and started to ask people and we started to run Facebook ads and a bunch of people kept saying, we keep seeing your Facebook ads. And then our pipeline's growing from like $0 a quarter when we started to like $3 million a quarter and all the attribution says that SEO is driving all the results. And I'm like, we haven't done a, we haven't invested a single dollar in SEO. This is branded search coming through Google, where Google is a toll booth where people just want to come to our website and it takes all the credit and attribution because the other things aren't being measured properly. Um, and I think it's just a, uh, it's a huge flaw in the current way that B2B companies measure things. Part of it is the measurement and part of it is the the mindset that we collect a lead, we nurture that lead, and we can track all those different things, and then they eventually become an MQL or an opportunity. Um, not understanding that so much of the buyer journey is happening in places that can't be measured. Um, and it just uh, it creates a... a an unreal view of what's actually happening with buyers that and all you want as a marketer is you just want to know the truth all you want as a business professional is you just want to know the truth um and when you ask your customers you get the truth they whether they say they hate your product or they you know they're going to churn or they won't recommend you or they say bad things or they say good things or they say they never buy this or they're not willing to pay for it whether it was when i was trying to figure out how to launch products or figuring out what features and products to build or what channels or content types or things like that to focus on every time you're just asked you want to ask the customer and doesn't it doesn't matter what they say you just want the truth and then it's your job to figure out how do i make what the customer wants work for me too um and it, it feels so simple but rarely executed in b2b yeah i uh i think that idea of attribution is so important to cmos because they say the the highest you know title in the c-suite that gets the most turnover is the marketing leader i think it comes from the basis that they don't they don't have enough confidence in the program that they're presenting like they they're usually the the, the position with the least amount of like authority or pull within the c-suite and usually it's because they don't like they'll like you said like you guys were on the facebook ads and the facebook ads was the thing creating pipeline or revenue but the attribution was reporting at the seo so now now it's like a company like that may, may have a CMO who doesn't have that visibility or confidence and present SEO like, hey, we need to scale SEO. Number one, they don't have the confidence in it because they're relying on software attribution that is very crappy and, and, and mis misleading. And then on top of that, they can't prove ROI because they can't even you know figure out where to, those ROI dollars make the most sense for the company. And they'll run it and they'll run SEO, they'll scale SEO and six months down the, down the, down the line, the CEO will come and say, well, Hey, you said to scale SEO. None of this is working. Like, what happened? And then the CMO doesn't have an answer, and there's your turnover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. I think people fail to understand that somebody can see your ad on Facebook or LinkedIn and not interact with it, and then search your company name two, three months later. That you know, even for us, that happened to us when we started our content journey. We're uploading every day on LinkedIn. No engagement. <laughs> no engagement. The impressions very little. And then one day we get um, we get a a meeting book for us. Somebody put it in through the website, and it's a, a billion dollar company. And because mm -hmm. if you remember when we seen it, we didn't even believe it. We're like, okay, somebody's obviously playing with us, you know. Um, and then we hopped on the call. It was real, and we're like, okay, well, mm -hmm. like, what made you 
book a call with us. You know, like we were. Con- mm-hmm. It was like, oh, well, I seen a video um, last month on LinkedIn. You were talking about such and such. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and we're on the call acting like we know, of course. And then we go back to the video. And it's like snow likes impressions probably under a thousand. And it's like, okay, well, you've seen this video. She shared it with, with their chief people officer. And then now we're on a call with a billion dollar company, and they're asking mm-hmm. us to do some type of consulting for them. Yeah, same. Uh, I saw this effect happen in 2015, 2016 at one of the B2C companies I I owned and operated, where on Saturday mornings that was like the time where I could run ads and be like fully dedicated to the ads. And so I'd run them in Saturday morning, usually nine to twelve, nine a.m. to twelve p.m. to noon, and every time I ran them. We would get three or four sales and they would all come through a desktop computer organic search and then you look and you say okay all these ads on instagram are being delivered on a mobile device back then it was really hard to check out on a mobile device mm-hmm. so people would go and they'd see the ad they wouldn't click on it they would go back to google they'd search the brand and they would check out on desktop because it was simply easier and you just you see the flaws in digital attribution straight away whether it's b2b or b2c it doesn't matter um, just these technologies don't properly measure the impact specifically of social media but also all the other places that i mentioned and I'm pretty sure that that's those reasons are probably why you you had to start your own company, you know, because I'm pretty sure you've seen a lot of B2B companies doing this and still do it or lack thereof. And I'm pretty sure you was like, yeah, I can I can do something here. Yeah, I mean, I just I I repeated the model at a Series D company. They IPO'd um, and figured out, tinkered and figured out all the things to make it work. Like the CEO is putting pressure on you about what things are working. What's the ROI? How are we driving pipeline? You're like, well, we spend $50,000 a month on Facebook ads and $5,000 a month on Google ads. So it's $55,000 in total budget. We're driving $3 million in pipeline. Out of the pipeline, we're going to close, you know, $750,000. We spent $55,000 a month and we do, we're doing that every quarter. So the ROI became very clear, but it wasn't about the ROI of one campaign on Facebook or Facebook ads generally. It was the holistic ROI of all the things in marketing that we're doing to drive business growth. Um, and so I think that was a, it's a really interesting switch in the mindset that it's a marketer's job to understand what's working and what's not so that you can tune the dials and pull the levers and things like that. But when it comes to the executive team and the board, you, they just want to know what are the outcomes that you're driving and what is the ROI? Um, and, so, and if we wanted to put more money in it, where would you put the money? Um, and so I think that like having an, if you have slides about attribution inside of your board deck, you're making a big mistake. Um, those things should happen at the marketing level only, in my view. And what should matter for executives and the board is like, are we driving results? What's working? What's not? And what do we need to what do we need to change? Definitely agree there. Um, I'm going to switch the uh, to get Let's your idea it. on it. Um, so being that we're in this economic climate or whatever that we're in recession, whatever you want to call it, it's not a good market. Um, I, I was reading an article, you know, d- doing my due diligence, and it was talking about um, how during a time like this, and even beyond this, customers uh, or B two B companies need to focus more on customer marketing. At this point, like it's becoming very crucially important that all, like NRR is the new ARR in a sense that you know, of course, the conventional wisdom is it's easier to to keep a customer than acquire a new one, but it's a lot of companies don't take that wisdom and apply it as acquisition 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 and they don't realize the compounding effect that if you taking care of your customers that you already have and focusing on your renewal programs focusing on how to expand an account are crucially important and at a time like this where the demand is down and there is only about 0.5 percent of people buying that customer marketing is is 
the is the way to go right now. So what, what's your viewpoint on how customers can pivot to start focusing more on customer marketing? Where should they start at? Yeah, so um, obviously customer marketing is important. I think it's it will be interesting to go through what is the actual definition of customer marketing, but I will uh, drop one anecdote here. Um, because nothing replaces getting new customers at low cost to scale a business. At some point, and that's, this is very true with the company that I worked for from 2016 to 2018, we got most of the revenue off of expansion before I got there. Um, and eventually, you're going to expand all the customers, and you're not going to have any more room to grow. Um, and that started to happen at the company. So nothing's going to replace having an, an engine of net new customers that come in, that have success, that you can then expand. So you need both, right? Like the idea that you just like abandon net new acquisition and go to customer marketing, I think is totally ridiculous right now. But um, having more of a focus on customer marketing, I think is a good thing. Um, when you think about customer marketing, it's like, wh what are we actually doing, right? Um, are we spending ad dollars to advertise to customers who already pay us? Are we going to set up private dinners at conferences with customers and try and have like more of a sales meeting to expand them? Are we going to do use case webinars all the time? Are we going to try and get a customer story and a case study with every single customer who's a certain size or a certain success level or a certain usage? Like, What are the tactics underneath customer marketing is something that I'm uh, I'm really interested in uh, defining. And then the second thing is like, how do you actually measure whether or not it's working? Um, I think that they're like, whether you ran uh, display ads to all your accounts through demand base that they didn't see and made no impact, that would make no impact on net new business. It's not gonna make any impact on current customers because people don't see those ads very often. But then those customers happen to expand because you have a great customer success team and you have a great sales team. And all of a sudden, marketing teams are over there saying, yeah, we're doing an awesome job expanding, you know, doing customer marketing, expanding customers, and their shit isn't doing anything because other people are really responsible for making that stuff happen. Um, that's where I get sort of iffy in customer marketing and swinging too far that far is that like, yes, there's a lot to be done, but one, we need to be able to acquire net new customers, and that's the way that we're going to fuel growth long term. And two, we need to be able to understand what is actually working for customers and touchpoint-based attribution is not going to do it. So you're going to have to do qualitative customer interviews. You're going to have to do win-loss analysis. You're going to have to have self-reported attribution. There are a lot of other ways to, to measure things to know whether or not things are actually working. So when it comes to like you, you're saying you, you probably shouldn't swing in either direction um, as far as, you know, giving marketing all the attribution for a successful customer marketing program. Um, What's your perspective on, um, you know, if on a high churn, like, do you think marketing should have some accountability in that? Like, maybe they're they're good at getting new acquisition, but these customers don't fit. Like, they're not a good product fit. They're, they're the timeline just doesn't make sense for your product. Like, these customers just don't fit. We're driving pipeline. They're we're getting new acquisition, but then once they onboard, they churn after ninety days because they're just not a good fit. Like, how much of that do you feel like is on marketing or customer success or on sales not qualifying them the right way? Probably a bad product. Yeah, I mean, like, if if marketing is driving bad leads they're not going to close pure and simple and and so i think like the responsibility of setting up the expectations and a successful customer and qualifying the customer that's going to be successful is truly a sales responsibility and a sales-led motion different if you're product-led and things like that um, but let's just go sales-led i think it's a sales responsibility and then product and customer success matter but i think churn is a business metric mm -hmm. Everyone at the company has to care about churn, 
Um, but to put like it as a scorecard on the marketing KPI, I think is misguided. I think that they have very little influence over it. And even the bad things that they could do are not going to drive customers to close, like the lead gen and other things. Like marketers would love if their shitty leads closed, even if they churned <laughs> after two months. But they don't. They just don't. They don't close. They don't even get to qualified pipe. They bar- often barely get to a meeting. Um, and so I don't see churn being like a key performance indicator for marketing anytime soon. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes to just understanding who your customer is. And because I'm pretty sure you've got hit with it, you've got hit with it. When you're you're about to cancel a subscription and then they hit you with, oh, you can get three months for 50% off. <laughs> I, I want somebody to do a measurement and see because the same way how you have high intent touch points when, you know, you see, you feel like somebody's about to enter your, your pipeline, I wonder if you can have touch points that, okay, this person's probably about to churn. And instead of waiting until they hit the cancel button, maybe as soon as you see those, you know, Try offering it now, you know, versus when they actually hit cancel. Yeah, I, I mean, there's, there are success stories about that. Customer, uh, people that use, like, intent data will look at intent data of, like, blah, 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 company alternatives, blah, 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 company competitors. And they'll be able to see which account it is. They'll cross-reference it to their customer list, and they'll go and try and reach out and save that churn they have before for big accounts. I think it's a really it's a really good strategy. It's probably a better way to use intent data than a lot of companies use right now. A lot of um, companies don't use it. That's the crazy part. Yeah. So, I mean, the, that that's one example that people could take away and use if you have a Sixth Sense demand base, Bombora, you know, whatever intent data system is feeding you the data. Like, you could go and put those keywords in just like you have for, you know, your Google search keywords, cross-reference it against your customer base, understand if it's a new customer or a current customer, and then, depl- like, trigger some type of action based on it. Yeah, so I want to know, right? So what did, what would you say in in the because you work with a lot of B two B companies, right? I'm pretty yeah, sure they they always come to you in in with you know questions and, and things as such. So like when you're you know maybe onboarding a client or you know maybe you're 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 talking to um, another B two B marketer, what are some things like um, some immediate things that you see that they are doing or may not be doing that you know you're like okay, well this is an easy fix. You know, do you see a trend in any of those? Totally, yeah. Like the first three months we work with customers is almost exactly the same because it's all of the, it's all of the fixing of what they think of as current best practices today. Lead handoff optimization becomes the first one. Like I was talking to somebody today, they get let's just they, let's just pretend they get a hundred uh, demo requests per month. Ten percent of them di- di- disqualified, so they get ninety qualified demo requests per month. And only 30 of them get into a actually sit on a meeting with the sales team, which means that 60 qualified accounts that ask for a demo every month don't actually sit on a meeting with the sales team, which is almost 500 missed meetings per year. Um, And we've done it enough where if you if you implement this calendar and make it easy for a customer to book a time with the sales rep, be committed to that time, not have to deal with the bullshit manual follow up that could happen in, you know, hours or days via email or some automated sequence that that 30 turns into 60 or turns into 70. And then all of a sudden your sales team's having 200 more meetings this year than they would have. So I think that so you, you can typically close to double pipeline on the same inbound flow by just fixing that. 
Next step is fixing the website conversion flow. So having a clear, you know, call to action that you want someone to do, which is typically ideally look at the data, understand what is our highest quality action? Is it contact sales? Is it the web, you know, filling out a web chat and booking a meeting that way? Is it asking for a demo? What is that high action? Put it in the top right-hand corner, make that page on the, on the form super, you know, easy to consume, social proof. There's a lot of conversion rate optimization tactics that you can use. Improve the amount of people that come to your website that fill out that form from two, you know, one percent to one point two percent, and you get major, major gains and lifts. Um, fixing Google SEM becomes the next one because companies overspend there and they waste a lot of money there. The typical playbook is to run Google Ads, run it into a squeeze landing page. So you go onto the landing page, there's no way out. It's like an optimizely or some type of page. There's no way out. You either like fill out the form for the ebook or you get kicked out and you leave. Um, so fixing that to focus on high intent keywords and modifiers like pricing, uh, software, platform, vendor. Um, so search terms with that, focusing on those keywords and trying to optimize to have them ask for a demo because they clearly have intent to buy based on the search query. Um, those end up being like the first, the first easy moves. And then the next stuff is cutting out all the waste. Where's all the spend going to typically high volume lead gen programs that aren't converting into meetings at a rate that makes sense, which is typically paid social lead gen, content syndication, some high volume affiliates, although some affiliates like G2 and Captera can be pretty good. Um, and then there you go over like the next two to three months, you do those things. Well, you're getting significantly more pipeline without spending an extra dollar. Ladies and gentlemen, this is free. <laughs> this is, he just gave that away for free. And like, I'm, I'm pretty sure like launch, so launching of the vault, um, if you want to give a, a, a quick explanation of what that is for those that, that don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we launched the vault. Uh, it is a research and information product that B2B marketers can use. We basically have worked with more than 250 B2B companies, primarily SaaS companies, but also in other industries. And through working with that many companies at scale, we see patterns way faster. We develop playbooks way better. We see what things work across industries and buyers and what things don't and what's specific to a certain company. So through the scale, we've been able to generate IP frameworks, playbooks, processes, templates, things like that, that B2B marketers can use that have been validated on working with hundreds of companies already that a marketer can buy. So maybe you don't want to hire an agency. Maybe you want to in-house it and do it yourself. Now, all of these, uh, all of the expertise that you would get from a consulting firm or agency is available to you without actually hiring them. Um, we are, there is a trend where more companies, especially B2B companies, it's weird. B2C companies don't think like this at all, but B2B companies do. B2B companies are trying to like, to, um, in-house everything because they think it's a competitive advantage. And then when you, when you think, and then when you think about in B2C, like B2C companies hire an AOR, an agency of record, they pay them $10 million a year for Pepsi or liquid death or Red Bull or something like that. And the, they have, you know, six marketers in house and everything happens at the agency level. And the reason they do that is because the agency works on a hundred brands and therefore sees things way faster, has processes, has frameworks, figures out how to use AI. They, the experience that they have is able to be deployed against your company with all the learnings that they have from the other 99 that you simply don't get in-house. And then in-house, like um, smart, big, big, uh, big company CMOs think about it this way too, is like, if you in-house everything, then like, what happens if like your paid search person who's managing $7 million a year in spend leaves? Or what happens if they fuck up? 
like so big cmos look at ha having an agency at minimum as a risk mitig risk mitigation tactic um and so i don't know just comparing comparing the way that b2c companies approach things versus b2b i think is super fascinating and this i think this uh the the move to in-house whether you want to hire my company or use the vault like you can use the vault and in-house it and get a lot of the benefits of what you would from hiring a consulting firm at a very low cost yeah like we we spoke about this even with um on our, our last episode with nick you know um him as being the first um the first marketer at his company he's like hey I, I had to learn fast and the best way to do that was to hire an agency rather than hire you know a bunch of kids or you know people <laughs> that that you're kind of hoping that they know what their job is because mm -hmm. you never really know until mm -hmm. they fuck it up you know um and so i'm a i'm a strong believer in of course obviously getting an expert you can you probably learn faster of course if you hire if you hire the, the right agency and you can make quicker iterations as long as you don't control the agency and you kind of let them have freedom in testing and and you know doing things on how they do because that's where their experience comes from i think where they mess up sometimes is that they don't the the marketing leader at the b2b company doesn't own the strategy like a lot of times the agencies should come in on the tactical level and then of course help with some of the strategic work but if if the the marketing lead has no clear direction or no con contextual like ref re relevance to the company then you're going to bring an agency in the agency's going to sometimes like it works in a lot of cases it works but there, there may be times where it doesn't work like the agency may have a very uh, very specific you know idea of how to grow the company how to grow the marketing department but it just doesn't fit the context of the company and because the the cmo or the marketing leader doesn't have any context or any foundational like basis of how to grow the the company then it just doesn't work out so it's all about philosophy yeah I mean, even as an agency like even us and i'm pretty sure you as well you have to match with a client or a potential client that has the same philosophy as you you know because um, it, it's it's hard it's hard especially when you're when, when you're reaching out to people but um it's hard to find you know um some type of synergy when it's like you and the company that you don't even have the same philosophy i'm looking long term you're thinking short term you want leads i want to do demand gen i think chris um, yeah, was talking about just... that before with the uh he was talking to one company and they they were like yeah let's do this abm strategy can you get a 750 please like next week <laughs> yeah and it's just um it's it's different because uh historically b2b companies have hired agencies as a form of business process outsourcing um which is basically like instead of running these ads and collecting all these mqls internally we'll just have an agency do it and they'll be more efficient and smarter or whatever they do, a lot of companies do the same thing with sdrs mm -hmm. um and so and so now like a lot of executives and b2b companies look at a marketing agency the same way they would look at an outsource sdr firm and think about it as a business process outsourcing when really it should be about go-to-market strategy it should be about what actual what channels to run and you have to decide like a lot of companies come to us and they're like you know our current agency isn't strategic they don't come with ideas and it's like well yeah you told them you need a thousand mqls through linkedin ads they they can't do anything but run lead forms and try and get you a 150 dollar cost per mql how there's you force them to not be strategic um, and so, and it's interesting too, when you think about like a B2C company, I haven't talked about this before, but when you think about a B2C company hiring an AOR, like they think they've got that company for the whole year, they have the entire budget, they work together on the entire plan, they think about where they're going to take their big swings, what they're going to have always on, what, like, what programs they're going to go, what experiments they're going to run, and they look at everything holistically, and then they look, is, is the business up or is the business down? Um, and 
that's you know not really how it goes in b2b the b2b companies will would rather pay 50 you know a big b2b company would rather have six agencies at 15k a month than one agency that looks at everything um and helps them with with everything and becomes fully accountable so they got they spend 27k over here on seo and sem then they have the social creative agency that just builds the creative doesn't run the media doesn't make the posts then they have the social agency at 20k a month that just runs the ads but doesn't control the creative and doesn't control the measurement then they got the RevOps agency that's trying to dictate the measurement and build the plumbing um and it's all scattered, and I just, uh, it's its crazy that B2B companies have not considered uh, the AOR model, because there's, there's plenty of B2B companies out there that spend $100,000 a month on agencies, but divided across five to seven companies, um, thinking that they're hiring specialists, but they're, what they're really doing is outsourcing a business process and not looking at everything holistically. So maybe we'll see that in the future. I think, like, as we've done it more, we... Uh, uh, we built a, you know, we have about a 15-person creative and content uh, team now that builds mainly content for social, organic, and paid um, because our customers couldn't figure out how to do it. And if you run the media and you don't control the creative, the media doesn't work as good. And if you, you know, if you run the, if you don't build the creative, then you run the media, and then you try to provide feedback to a different agency or an internal team about what they should change, it doesn't work. And so we built the whole thing holistically where. We help the company with the measurement. We execute. We build all the content and creative. We actually run the media, and that allows us to be fully accountable to the outcomes. It also creates a really interesting feedback loop where you learn a lot faster. And so, I think that more smart companies will look at consolidate consolidation. You're seeing consolidation in tech, right? People are losing, getting rid of all their point solutions and consolidating on one thing. Why aren't they doing that in professional services too? I don't know, um, but I think that smart companies will consider something like that one for accountability finding a strategic partner and then being able to own multiple levers so you can actually take accountability to results yeah because five five different agencies yeah you can't really even pinpoint you know who's at fault if you have five people working on one campaign the only one who's at fault is the business at that point mm -hmm. yeah none of if you only own one part of it no agency can be accountable to business results so i want to know how did so with your philosophy how did you because this is something like we're even fans of as business owners, right? How did how are you able to have that trickle all the way down and everybody you hire, what it seems like, is always on the same page. Everybody, every fine lab is, is on the same page. By uh, having a strong point of view on the market, which then attracts talent that sees all of the problems that companies face right now because they work at a company and they see all the problems. Um, so I think it really comes down like people look at like once you hire someone How do you get them to post on LinkedIn? It happens way before that it happens about who you're attracting into your company um, and, and you attract people based on how you market your company and, and so um, We've been able to attract people that see myself Megan Sam other people at the company being really successful with their Content on LinkedIn and they say I you know, I believe in those things. I see these problems. I want to do that, too and when they see the leadership doing it and they see the leadership committed to it and doing it every day, then they feel empowered to go and do it themselves. We provide enablement and you know, there's other things to do. I don't want to discount that. But in reality, it comes down to the type of talent that you attract and how you attract them. And then how you how you act as leaders to set the tone for for how we actually go to market. Uh, LinkedIn podcast, social media, all the all these different things is, has been core to the business growth strategy from day one. 
and it's not like that in most companies. And so most companies, you know, have a thousand employees and are trying to figure out how to build their social selling program. The culture doesn't support it. The people that came here didn't, you know, think about that on the way in. The leadership doesn't do it every day and they push it down as an initiative to like managers and directors and hope that it works. And it has to it has to be executed from the top and it has to be core to the business strategy to work. Yeah, like you like that's and it speaks volumes because that's one thing like we we love to talk about is building the relationship with your client before they even become a client which i'm pretty sure you you have already there's people that have never met you they're like oh yeah chris like they'll talk about you like they know you like they've met you and when you ask them you'll be like nah i haven't met him but i watch all his videos but in, but that helps create a relationship, especially when you have everybody at the company doing it, and like everybody at the company has the same message. You know, they're they're talking about the same thing. You believe in the same thing. You're not just talking about it, and everybody speaks on it like they're experts. Mm-hmm. Thought leadership, and a, a lot of companies they see it, but they they fail to even be like, oh, you know what? Maybe I should do that. It's sad. <laughs> it's yeah. sad. But and I, I want to ask you, right? So what do you? What do you most? Because this is a company you like. Like you said, you started. You had three thousand dollars in your bank account. What are you most proud about, about Refine Labs? I think there's there's two things. Um, the first thing is that when I set out to build this company, I always thought that I'm building future CMOs. Mm. Um, that was four years ago. I'm We're building the company that creates the future B2B SaaS marketing leaders, the most well-known uh, talented CMOs out there. And four years into the journey, we're starting to see that. Sam, Sam Keenley is a VP of marketing, going to be a CMO in the future. Um, Allison Lohman has gone, moved on and done uh, going to do VP of growth and going to be a CMO. MJ Peters has been another one. Um, and so I'm pumped if, if someone wants to come and work in my company, add a bunch of value for two years, build up their personal brand, and then move on and, do, and go and chase their dream and be a CMO or a head of marketing somewhere. That feels amazing. And so watching people that view themselves as underdogs before they got here, that, hey, I was like a senior manager. I was super talented. Nobody gave me a shot. I was buried in the org chart. The marketing team wasn't growing, whatever. They just didn't get their shot. And to come to my company for two years and learn a bunch of stuff and build their profile and then go on to be able to do what they wanted to do originally and for my, myself and my company to be the bridge to allow that to do that makes me so happy. It makes me super proud. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And then on a, on a different level, um, like building the, building the company to this size taught me that I was thinking too small. Um, and has been able to expand my horizons about what's possible, not only in business, but in my personal life and how I approach things in the gym, um, in other endeavors. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's shown me that like, that I'm, uh, capable of a lot more than I gave myself credit for originally, which has been something that's amazing. And I've had the opportunity to probably... You know, I have a goal of, of helping a million people live a better life, um, and I don't I don't know how to actually track that number <laughs> totally. But There's no attribution. Uh, I don't I don't have attribution <laughs> on that. But um, the amount of thank you notes that I get, and the amount of people that have implemented just one small strategy and gotten something, or been able to get a promotion or a raise or get a new job or do anything like that, and be more successful just by the content. They're not our customer. They didn't pay me any money, but being able to take that and do that makes me super happy. So. Um, those have been uh, those have been some of the things that I'm most proud of. 
Perfect. So how we like to wrap up episodes, we like to give our audience some uh, either some homework or some advice. So we're going to give advice this time. Um, let's talk to a uh, CMO or VP of marketing at a uh, anywhere between Series A and Series B company. And they're the first marketing hire and they're coming into chaos, whatever that may look like. What advice would you give them on how to navigate the, f- the first 90 days when they get in there? Uh, step one, run analysis and figure out where you're wasting money and cut it immediately and give the company back the money. Step two, um, go and talk to your 10 best customers, 10 worst customers, however you define best and worst, and understand what the differences are and try and figure out if there's a different way to segment or target or something like that. Then take those learnings, go out into the market for prospective customers or target accounts and go and talk to the decision makers there and learn a ton about your customers and then come back and build a marketing strategy. Marketing is not about running ads or putting together a podcast or doing something like that. It's understanding your customers better than anybody else in the company, being able to act on the behalf of, of customers inside of decision making in, in executive meetings and things like that, and be able to shape the go-to-market strategy, the overall customer experience, how we segment and target, which then leads downstream to all the promotional things. And then step three is figure out how to drive revenue in the first quarter. Um, I gave gave that roadmap before, so you have a roadmap if you want to go and rewind the podcast and go and listen to those things. There was three or four tactical steps that'll drive revenue fast, being able to do those things, and also figuring out if there are different ways to optimize the sales process. Are there ways to enable your sales team to close more pipeline that they already have? Customer stories, um, a better pitch deck, a better demo flow. Um, and so at a series A or series B company, like those types of th- that type of groundwork helps a lot. You're not working at a series D company that has that stuff dialed in yet. So like sales enablement and pipeline acceleration, stop wait, analyze and stop wasting money, go and figure out, learn, cu- learn about customers better than anybody else and figure out how to drive revenue in the first 90 days. Chris, where can our audience find you at? Uh, you can follow, follow or connect with me on LinkedIn, Chris Walker 171 and also check out the Revenue Vitals podcast on Apple, Spotify, and other platforms. I would say YouTube as well. I feel like oh, you, yeah. You have you a like lot it? of, good, yeah, you you like have a lot of good content on YouTube. Yeah, I see yeah. your shorts every day. And I, I get, <laughs> yeah. I get, yeah. I get yeah. happy. Yeah. I, I see, I look at the views versus like LinkedIn. I'd be like, oh, a lot of people are missing out on this. Yeah, they are. I, Damn. I, I feel like I'm getting this, yeah, We're, we're getting game for free on shorts. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for the plug, man. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, I got to think about a little bit more about YouTube then. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, we just had Chris Walker the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Hell yeah. Thanks, guys.